But two, this way if I really destroy the sermon, at least you've heard something good. Um, so that's really the purpose here. So it's from Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. So if you want to turn to it, otherwise I, they may bring it up, I don't know. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now this is very popular, very well-known scripture, and I think it's incredibly important that we recognize what it's saying to us for two reasons. If you're a ch- if, here as IPC, so as believers, if you do not understand what this is saying and what Isaiah encountered and actually experience it yourself, um, there we go, then what's going to happen is that revival you've been praying for, that growth, that change of the community and of Oxford County and of Ontario and of Canada and the world is never going to happen. Okay, and I'm being very intentionally quite hard because um, all these things we want as Christians, this growth doesn't happen because you have a clever preacher, doesn't happen with schooling, it's not going to happen with anything, great music, this service in general is not going to do what we want to accomplish, which is revival, change. Um, If you want to be that person, you know, there's a lot of Christians who, who, um, you read about people like Isaiah who have incredible um, experiences, but you actually deep down think, I've never had that. You can't really relate to what's being said. You can't relate to the great people in the history of the church who say they've met God, experienced God, because you say, you know, I don't know what it's like deep down. And unless you do, you're never going to respond like Isaiah. And if you're not a believer, or if you're a seeker and you're on your road to faith and you're here or listening to this online or wherever we put it, then it's equally important. Because you are never going to accomplish anything in this world that lasts without having an Isaiah experience. You see, because the world is becoming more self-absorbed. We know this. It's not a new thing. In the 1990s, a guy named Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And it was all about how culture is becoming so self-absorbed that it's visible in the way people are not volunteering as much for for, uh, charitable work. Um, Giving is down. uh, Church attendance is down. Voting is down. Um, and those things, these are all signs that we're becoming more self-absorbed, but it's not just in the world. See, because in Canada, for instance, um, this last year, no, Canadians are at an all-time low of giving. Okay, they've never given less to charity, according to the to CRA. And they've also given, never, uh, we've never given less as far as percentage of people in Canada and as how much we're giving. We're giving, just not giving. And in the church as well, lest I just pick on the world, in the church, um, missionaries are not signing up the way they used to. P- missionaries are not being funded as they used to. In, in America, the Southern Baptist Con- uh, Convention, which is the largest uh, denomination in America, 
had to cut 983 missionaries last year because they overspent $210 million, million dollars, because the money's just not coming in. So here we are as a church, praying for revival, IPC and elsewhere, praying to see incredible things happen, healings and all these things, and yet um, we haven't, we're not doing, I'll say we're not doing the right things. We haven't yet met God. Can I just be very frank? We have not all met God the way we need to. And we're going to look at Isaiah and see what can we learn there. Because if you look at Isaiah, there's three things I'm going to try to do this morning and point out to you. That if you want to be a person like Isaiah, okay, think about what Isaiah does. He was the nephew of the king of Israel, wealthy, well-spoken. He had his future mapped out for him. And at the end, when he says, here I am, send me, do you know what he's signing up for? God says, I need someone who is going to preach, but no one's going to listen. I need someone who's going to, I need someone incredibly talented, but who's willing to waste every gift and not get accolades for it, not be known as the golden tongue of Israel, but who's willing to simply say, I have all these gifts and I'm going to use them in obscurity. And when, remember, if you remember, he says, how long, O Lord? And God, what does God say? Till the mountains crumble. So many of you are very talented, but do you have the faith to say, um, all these gifts God's given me, I'm not going to use them. Don't we always say God wants us to use our gifts? Isaiah is saying, yeah, I'm going to use them, but I'm going to use them in such a way that only God is glorified, not myself, nobody. I want to be a person like that. And if we are going to see the change we want, we have to be. So three things we're going to look at. We have to be, uh, I'll explain why I choose these words. Uh, ruined by glory, changed by holiness, and reconciled by grace. So there's three things you encounter in this passage Isaiah encounters that we're going to talk about. Glory, holiness, and grace. Okay? Let's go. First one, glory. So Isaiah is shook. He, 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 he experiences an earthquake, basically. Um, and because the glory of the Lord is settled in the temple. Now, if I ask you what glory is, you're probably going to say um, something like, well, glory of God is um, like his radiance. It is greatness. It is, I want to use a new age term, aura. Uh, you know, it's this thing. It's like, you know, in the, in the old paintings of the saints and they've got that light around their heads. Isn't that God's glory? Um, because you probably haven't thought deep enough about what it means to be glory, what, what God's glory is. In the Hebrew, the word is kabod. And that word, yes, it means this, gra- this radiance, but it means far more. In fact, the most literal translation of it is weightiness, heaviness, density. And you think, wow, how is that glory? Um, in fact, that's why C.S. Lewis called his book The Weight of Glory, if you have any C.S. Lewis files here. Um, and this is why. Do you ever notice that when God shows up, especially, well, everywhere, Old Testament or New, there's always an earthquake. Exodus 6, 19, on the mountain, the glory of the Lord came down, and what happens? Shakes. Acts 2, the Pentecost. Remember the Holy Spirit comes, tongues of fire, and what happens? The room shakes. And the reason is, this is why, this should lead you to understand why is it. And when you see that the word glory means weight, this is important for us and for Isaiah. Because I'll give you a very practical example. If you're standing on a river and it's frozen, and you drop a boulder on the river, what will happen? Well, a few things. One, it's going to crash right through the ice, and you're going to probably feel the rumble under your feet. Why is that? Well, it's because the density of the rock, the weightiness of it, is so great that it simply can't stand to survive in the same space as this flimsy ice. It's going to crash right through it. And not just is it going to shatter and make your feet shake, but when that boulder hits the river, have you ever noticed the river changes its course around the boulder, but the boulder itself is not changed? 
Over thousands of years, maybe it'll smooth it out. But the boulder itself is not changed. And when Isaiah meets God, and that weight of God, the glory of God, falls on Isaiah, Isaiah is changed. Okay? Not God. And this is important because, um, see, Isaiah, prior to meeting God in the temple, see, much like us, he went to the temple never expecting to see God. Okay? That's an indictment, by the way, of all of us. But he never expects it. And when he finally meets God, do you know what he realizes? God, until that moment, God was a concept to Isaiah. He wasn't real. Because, you know, we think of God as, his, uh, as a spirit, which he is. The Bible says God is spirit. Um, but when you think of Holy Ghost, for instance, that word ghost, what do you think about God? You think about something that you can put your hand through, something lighter than you, something that is a mist, a vapor, um, whatever that image is you have, you don't have that he is actually more real than you. You see, the reformers in the Reformation never used the word real to refer to humanity, only about God, and I was always puzzled as to why. And this is why. This seems real. If I burn this hot enough, it will disappear. Then what becomes of it? Is it real? Or is it gone? So real is always reserved in the Bible for God alone, because he is that weight. And if you remain, and this is the, 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 the plague of most Christians, um, if God could change the world with 12 people, how come 2.3 billion Christians have made such a little dent in the world? And this is why. Because much like Isaiah, God remains a concept to you and I far too much. And the problem with a concept, let's use that same example of the rock. Your God and my God too often is lighter than me, is lighter than you. Your idea of God is that he is light, like a piece of paper hitting the river. What happens there? The river sweeps it away. Because the concept of God, if he's not heavy enough to you, if you haven't met him, then you actually have a God that you can shape. He's, he's an idea. And that God can be shaped and molded into your image anytime you want. So when you're feeling down and you've been fired from your job, even though you may very well be a terrible employee who deserves to be fired, what do you say? I'm persecuted for the church. Really? That maybe your concept of God is not hard enough. We need to be changed by God. And Isaiah meets this God, and he has changed. His motivation, his view, his heart, everything has changed. And until you know that God is that, until you've met that God, you're going to sleep very well, but you're going to be creating a God in your own image. That you're going to be praying, and you'll always be praying, and thinking, and reading. And you'll go into scripture looking for justification of who you are. And we need to encounter, that's why this first one is being ruined by grace. Until you have actually met God, and it may not look like Isaiah, Okay? Isaiah is met in this way, and he's terrified. He falls on his face. You know, God effectively says, Isaiah, you're a very good, proud man. You better start getting scared. But then he meets Jeremiah. Remember early in Jeremiah? And what does he say? Stop crying. So he meets Isaiah, who's proud, and says, Start crying, you scoundrel. Then he meets Jeremiah, who's already weeping and unsure of himself, and he says, Stop crying. Get up. Don't you know who you are? God will meet you where you are. But here's the point of point one. If you have met him, you will be rearranged. It won't be the same. may not meet him like Isaiah, but if you haven't changed, then you have not met God yet. I'm going to be very hard on you. You haven't met him the way Isaiah has. And I know many of us are probably thinking, yeah, I haven't heard the words. I haven't seen these things that all these great Christians have. And maybe that's part of it. We haven't yet encountered the glory of God. We haven't been ruined by his glory. Okay, so that's the first one. If we're going to be a people that we want to be, we must encounter this real God.
Second one is being changed by holiness. So Isaiah is experiencing an awful lot. I mean, imagine what he's experiencing, and then you can imagine um, how jumbled your emotions would be. You're seeing, you're being humbled, you're being, you're terrified. You're probably enthralled by the beauty of what you're seeing. It's, it's, it's pretty uh, crazy atmosphere. But the one thing that is interesting here is what the seraphim, the angels, are singing. They say, holy, holy, holy. Now, that's an, we're going to linger on this idea of holy. So if we've now established what grace is, we've hopefully, I've hopefully made it a little easier for you to understand. The next one is, is God's holiness. See, if I ask you, what is holiness? So you're, you probably have another not very clear idea. You probably have a vague idea of what holiness is. You wouldn't be able to nail down a definition. Okay, so we're going to try to help us see what, what Isaiah saw, what these angels are singing about. So here's the first thing. Did you know in Hebrew there's no such thing, there's no um, emphatic words. They don't have the word very or really, you know. So if in the Bible it says, especially in the Old Testament, um, but you see it in the New as well, which I'll point out. If you see it says Joseph was thrown into a deep pit or the, the, the emblems on the altar were made of the purest gold. You know, it doesn't say purest gold in Hebrew. It doesn't say deep pit. It says pit pit, gold gold. See, it can't say very. So what Hebrew does is it adds the words. So, for instance, you'd see me and he'd say, he is handsome, handsome. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. It's getting a little heavy. Um, but you see, and we see this in the New Testament. Yes, it's written in Greek. But do you notice Jesus says, Mary, Mary, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because he's, it's, it, you, when, he, when you see J Jesus you, or anybody using a word twice, you know it's something deep. It's not just Mary. It's Mary something more. But here's the important thing about what these angels are singing to Isaiah. Nothing in the Bible is ever referred to with three words. Nothing is ever tripled, holy, 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 except for God. It's called the trisagion, if you want to keep your theological knowledge up. And this is, the reason this is important is the biblical writers across generations somehow observe this one rule where they say, nothing deserves three. Nothing is so awesome, so pure, so brilliant, so beautiful as God. It's the only time in the Old Testament this shows up is here, and the New Testament it shows up in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy. And it's only referred to God. So when we talk about God's holiness, you probably hear it in sermons referred to as being set apart. You know, make yourself holy, consecrate yourself. And that's true. Set apart. Imagine you have a plate full of marbles, and you're going to pull out the best one. You separate, you set apart the one good one from the, the crowd. That is fair. But if you leave your, your concept of holiness at that, you know what you're missing is why you separated that one. The reason is there's something inherent in that marble that means, that makes it separate, that makes it better than the rest. And when it comes to God, it is, he is more perfect than you'll ever be. He is more brilliant, and I mean that in his physical essence. All these things, he is more awesome than us. That is his holiness, something great. Um, and this is what, and the reason this is incredible is the angels are singing, flying around singing, holy, holy, holy. You see, the angels love God because of what he is, beautiful. Have you ever listened to music and you could just sit back, whatever music you like, it could be classical, it could be anything, and you sit back and you simply revel in the music. You just love it. Now, why do you like it? It doesn't do anything for you. You simply like it because it's beautiful. You love it because it's lovely. And that is what the angels are doing to God. They're saying, I love him because he's awesome. They don't love him because what he does for them. 
Okay, there's a difference there. And th- when I talk about point two being changed by holiness, you and I need to get to a place where we stop loving God because of what he does for us and start loving him for who he is. And let me, again, work this out more uh, with some, some examples. Um, imagine you're, you're a wealthy person. Maybe you are a wealthy person. If you are, come and talk to me after. We have a, an investment opportunity. No, um, but imagine you're a wealthy person and you are married to somebody, but then that person leaves you. And the reason they leave you is because they realized you tied up your money so well they could never get at it. Then how would you feel? Well, you feel used, you feel miserable, you feel angry, humiliated, you feel many things. But this is, can I be honest, this is how we treat God often. You see, we all came to God for a need. We all recognize the lack in us somewhere. That could have been anything. It could have been a hole in our lifestyle. We, didn't, we weren't being satisfied in our jobs or our marriages or whatever it is. But there's a point at which we have to stop loving God for what he does for us and start loving him for what he is. Let me give you an example. So we come to God. Somebody might come to God saying, I'm in trouble. My life is a mess. I, have, I need a job. I need money. I need healing. My friend needs healing. My aunt, whatever, anything. And we come to God. And then, when we pray for that thing, healing, whatever it is, you know, what, he, what happens is it doesn't get answered. The friend you're praying for dies. The job you want never comes, and you're three years unemployed, struggling, going into debt, and you think, if, you're not, if you, faith is not strong, this is what happens. Just like that spouse, you say to God, you know what? God, you have this big blessing account. You have a bank full of blessing, and you didn't come through to me. You didn't answer it. You're not letting me get at your money, at your wealth. So I'm out. I came to you. I gave you a chance, but you didn't do it, so I'm gone. Now, how many of us do that with God? Many people. And we need to break that. But here's the challenge of this. How do we break that? How do we fall in love with something that doesn't help us? Because God's holiness is not something that... um, uh, benefits us. Uh, so that's point two. So if we know we need to be impacted, shook by God's glory, and then resulting from that, we need to be changed to actually love God for who he is rather than what he gets us. The last part needs to be practical. I don't want to just leave you with head knowledge. How do you actually become Isaiah? How do you encounter this God? Um, and that will lead, uh, actually even more, from First Chronicles 20, uh, 16, 29. It says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What does that mean? You can put up your hand if you think you know. It's a tough one. How do you worship the beauty of holiness? Because, and this is point three, we get into this part now, grace is the answer. And Jonathan Edwards helped me here. Jonathan Edwards, an American dead theologian, said, asked this question. He said, you know, I can love God's power, his mercy, uh, his wisdom, because all those things can help me. I could use his power. I could use his wisdom. I could certainly use his mercy. But how do I love his holiness? Because his holiness, remember, his grandness, is actually only threatening to me. Now, I'll explain what Edwards means. Um, If you are a person who um, sings, let's say, and you've won many blue ribbons for your singing, and you think, you know what? Every time I sing, people are are patting me on the back. I'm winning awards at all the fairs here in Oxford County. I'm going to go to New York, and I'm going to try out for a Broadway show. Anyone here who's ever gone to a big audition like that for anything, be it a sports, doesn't matter, do you know what happens the moment you walk in? You realize millions of people can sing just as good as you, probably better. And I use an example of uh, me when I, I, believe it or not, many pounds ago, I played baseball. 
And I went to a Blue Jays tryout when I was 17 years old. And I thought I was the greatest. You know, I walked up, I was really excited. I signed my name on the, to register and literally put my pen down on the table and turned around, very macho walk. And um, as I was walking away, I heard a sound. Some big, uh, you know, uh, uh, wheat-fed farm boy from Manitoba hit a ball. And the sound that ball made off the bat, I had never heard in my life. And I looked and I thought, I don't belong here. I was immediately humbled in the presence of a big giant farm boy from Manitoba. And you would be humbled in the presence of a greater singer, a better mother, a better father, a better accountant, whatever, you're, whatever it is. And if that's the case, if in the presence of human superlativeness, human greatness, I am made small, imagine how much smaller you would feel in the presence of a perfect God. Wouldn't you feel immediately inadequate? Wouldn't a preacher think immediately how poorly he was able to describe God all those years? Wouldn't the best prayer of all of you think how little you prayed in comparison? It's just quite natural. So that's what Jonathan Edwards is saying. How do you love that? How do you love that feeling of being reminded that you're inferior? It's impossible, isn't it? Well, not really. Um, and this is why. In fact, okay, well, let's go in. So we'll go into what Isaiah experiences. So he comes into the temple, he sees God, foundation shake. He is you know, set on alert. He then sees the angels and he sees God. And what does he sing? He say, woe to me, I am undone. The, undone is the old King James Version. But that's a better translation, let me say, than some of the others. Because it literally means to be uh, unraveled is the term in the Hebrew. So it's a good translation. So Isaiah is riddled. He is made to feel like the ant he is. And at this point, let me address the skeptics in the audience. Because a skeptic would say, See, this is the problem, Carl, with your silly God. Your God always is like that. He's mean, he's brutal, especially the Old Testament God, and he's always making us see how little we deserve him. That's not my kind of God, they'd say. they say, Carl, my God is the God of love. He wouldn't judge me. He wouldn't make me feel small. And let me just answer that very briefly, in case there is a skeptic. You're wrong. And this is why. Imagine now that there is, and I don't want to belittle it, but this idea of a God who is only love, never, never challenges, never questions you, that is a God, like Isaiah's previous concept, that's light. Because that God will, first of all, never challenge you. But let's imagine he exists. Let's imagine this God exists who would never challenge you. Do you know what would happen if you met a perfectly loved God in that way? You would stand before him and you'd think, I've never loved like that. Thought I loved my wife. Not like that. I thought I loved my kids. Not like that. So even the supposed God of love would still leave you feeling like Isaiah. How couldn't he? So when Isaiah, and, and this is my other answer to skeptics, the story doesn't end with Isaiah on his face crying. It ends quite differently. Because Isaiah rightly sees, um, is terrified when he sees the angel coming with a coal. So in the Old Testament, just so you know, fire is not a symbol of purity or refinement. It's a symbol of destruction. Okay? You're, you see fire coming, you're in trouble. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember pretty much everything? You don't encounter God and survive. He remembered that much from his teaching about Moses and about the people touching the ark. So you don't get near God. So he sees this fire coming towards him and he is understandably undone. But what happens? He knows, I don't deserve this. I am the golden-tongued prophet of Israel and I'm a I have unclean lips. Can you imagine that? Think of the thing that you're most confident in, and God is saying, not even close. 
Think you're a great businessman? Nothing. And he comes, and, God, and Isaiah rightly understands he deserves to be destroyed. But what does he receive? Grace. You see, this is the incredibly important part. If we want to be a people that answer like Isaiah, we need to recognize, first of all, that you don't deserve anything. You don't. But that you've been given everything. You see, imagine somebody coming to your door and saying, your entire mortgage is due now or else. And then you're like, <clears throat> but then in that same moment, he says, don't worry, we paid it then what would happen? In that one moment, your self-image is destroyed because you realize how you, you're inadequate, but then it's built up immediately because you realize somebody was willing to pay it for you. And this change in Isaiah is, I'm going to say, be very bold. If we can understand what the gospel has done for us, you will be perfect. Let me explain what I mean because we're not perfect, okay? But here's what I mean. This, what Isaiah experienced, is the antidote for depression, Okay, I'm not going to say you can't be chemically depressed. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, but hear me out. If you recognize all at once that you are worse than you believed, but more loved than you imagined, at the same time, those are strange paradoxes. You're worse than you ever imagined, Isaiah. Get down on your face. But you're better because I love you. I've, I've, I've died for you. I chose to do it for you. Um, you know what that does? It makes you the perfect person because you can, you can encounter criticism. So when somebody criticizes you and says, Carl, that was a terrible sermon, I can say, probably was, because I've seen him, and I can't possibly do justice by comparing him to a boulder. So it probably was bad. So I'm not destroyed by your criticism. I don't go home and weep. Not because I don't trust or, or like you or take you seriously, but because I'm not defined by you. Same thing at work. You do a bad job at work, you get fired. Your kids say, I hate you, and slam the door, which will happen uh, at some point, I'm sure. Um, you're not destroyed by that criticism because you know you kind of deserved it. But you're also not puffed up. When, you're, when somebody used to come and say, Carl, that's actually the best servant I've ever heard. I won't be conceited because I realize wasn't the best. Can't be the best until, I, until we all see him. One day you're going to see God, I, I got, you know, God willing. And you're going to realize how poorly we described him, how miserable a preacher I am and Chris is. No offense to Chris. <laughs> or me. Um, it's just a fact. But this is the antidote for everything. That if we do, and, and this is why. So let me always do what I like to do. Why is it that Isaiah and you are being told you're forgiven freely? See, Isaiah falls on his face because he's facing something he doesn't want to encounter. He falls on his face and repents, and he is given forgiveness freely. Why? This is why. Because Jesus is in the garden many, many years later, and he prays, if this cup can pass for me, do it. Please let it pass. Do you know what that cup is filled with? See, we think of a cup in the Old Testament, because remember, there's no New Testament when Jesus is in the garden yet. The Old Testament, the cup is always filled with God's wrath. In fact, you see it in Revelation. He pours out the bowls of wrath. Um, so when Jesus is saying, pass this cup, listen, Jesus is not afraid of physically dying. Jesus doesn't suffer any more than those other two um, men on the cross physically. What he's afraid of is being cut off from God, separation from God. And he's saying, I don't want to face it. He doesn't want to face it. He prays like Isaiah does. He confesses. But Isaiah gets an angel who forgives him. Nobody answers Christ's call. He's on the cross. Lord, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani in, in Aramaic. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, who answers his call? Nobody. And the reason he sat there and nobody answered it was so that you could get what Isaiah got. 
so that when you are a mess and you make a mistake and when you simply don't honor God, you can say, I'm sorry, but thank you that your son has paid it. You know, it's almost funny. You need to pray for forgiveness, but you almost have to pray in such a way to say, thank you that it's already been forgiven. You don't have to, you don't have to beg for forgiveness. But it's only because of that. And if we can somehow experience this and you can't force it listen you can't go home and pray God I want to see you like Isaiah and he's going to answer you God does not do that but here's what you can do simply go to him and say like Moses I want to meet you I don't know what these songs are talking about it's possible you may have been a Christian your whole life and say I've never had this moment ask God for it seek it strive after it because until you do you're always going to be just a little bit disconnected you're never going to accomplish what you're meant to accomplish ever. And I'll end with this last little quote from a a William Cowper um, hymn. Because this really sums it up. When you see the cross, when you see what was given for you, you'll become like Isaiah. And listen to this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Answering, coming to church, tithing, you think it's a burden. If you still think it's a burden, you haven't met him. After a while, you're going to see, this is not a burden. It's a gift. Even if it's the last penny in your bank account, you give it, not because you feel guilty, but because you think, well, what can't I give? What shouldn't I give? You'll be changed like Isaiah, even if it costs you everything. And that's where I'll close. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. I pray uh, for everyone here. (laughs) I pray that everybody would have this same prayer, Lord. But um, God, we want to see you in a greater way. I know we're Presbyterians, so we don't say that. Uh, we, we want to read about you sometimes or, or experience you in a book. Um, but Lord, I pray that we would um, just seek after you. We want to be transformed. We want to be rearranged. We all know where there is a need in our lives to be changed. God, I pray for that, for each one, that this week even, that we would all be marinating in this verse and these passages. And um, God, that you would come in great power, not just for our own sake, but so that the world can be transformed. God, we want to be the church that our vision says we are and that we want to be. And we're not, we're not there yet. God, we, we will uh, never get there until we have really met you and, and been ruined by your glory, changed by your holiness, and reconciled by your grace. God, I pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.